everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. And if you're just jumping in with us, let me recap the last couple of weeks before we dive in today. We started off a couple of weeks ago, and Drew ran us through the idea that there is no belief neutrality, that as there's been this move of deconstructing faith, that we don't do that in a vacuum. There is not a neutral belief space, that there is a water that we're swimming in that we need to be aware of so that we're not naive to what is actually influencing our beliefs. And last week we took a run, kind of a 40,000 foot run at the uh, secular narrative compared with the Christian narrative and looked at how those two different narratives, which we call religions really, because they address the four big questions of origin and meaning and morality and destiny. And then looked at some of the implications of that And how those two competing narratives at certain critical junctures are giving rise to humanism and naturalism and individualism. So starting today, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the narratives of our faith and where we did a 40,000 foot view of the Christian narrative. We're going to dive in a bit more deeply and look at specifically the kingdom of God today and next week really look at some different meta narratives, the big overarching stories. The kingdom of God is one of those strains going to look at a couple more next week as well. So today, though, we're going to start with the kingdom. Drew, explain why we're using kingdom terminology to describe our faith and how potentially that contrasts with the secular narrative. The kingdom language is really significant. And the main reason we're using this is this is the language Jesus used. If you go to Mark chapter 1, He started, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. And so that that is the main message of Jesus. Um, So fundamentally, that's why we're using it. I also think that language is especially important because of the way it contrasts with the story that's being told to us in our world. And hopefully by the end of the day, you'll see some of those, those differences. You know, if you look at the concept of God's kingdom, you see it throughout the entirety of scripture. And I think maybe just the way that our societies operate in modern times, we, uh, we lose sight of that, or maybe we don't understand what it actually means or the implications or just what a big deal it would have been in that era. It's like we've, we've lost sight of the reality of what a kingdom is and why that's important, but it really has um, significant theological implications. So, you know, let's pause for a second. Like, what are some of the, the things that we hear when we do hear people talking about the kingdom of God? So I'll, I'll start with one. I think um, I've heard quite a people, when they talk about the kingdom, they've really re- reduced it to ethics. And so they'll talk about the kingdom as a system of ethics that are based on the teachings of Jesus. And those are part of the kingdom. I mean, for sure, there is an ethic within the kingdom of God. But I, if we leave it at that, that really misses the point of what a kingdom is. It's not an ethical system. I mean, Mick, what else? What are other things? What do you hear? Yeah, I think one of the places that this idea of the kingdom crops up consistently is in the notion of political views that uh, certain people have have confused a party platform with this kind of kingdom terminology. Typically, when we make that step, it's suspicious to me how my political views always perfectly coincide with what the kingdom really is, you know, and 
um, the kingdom can quickly become validation for what vision I have for where I think our country needs to go or our world needs to go. Right. Yeah. There's a misapplication or putting the cart before the horse that I am imposing an idea or overlaying an idea that is very terrestrial, that's very here and now over an ancient idea that I, that I don't take the time to understand. And if we do grasp the kingdom, it has huge implications for all types of things, but, but we can't start with reducing it to our modern situation. Yeah, maybe another one. I hear people talk about the kingdom as opposed to the church, um, where they, they draw a contrast of like the kingdom is this and the church is that. I really think that's a dangerous idea. Um, there is some distinction, but those two have to fit together. And the kingdom is not some alternative form of Christianity as opposed to congregational life. Um, but those two fit together. You know, we could probably keep going. But the kingdom of God, ultimately, I, I'm going to use this quote from a theologian named John Bright. The kingdom of God is the whole notion of the rule of God over his people and particularly the vindication of that rule and people in glory at the end of history. And so, in other words, the kingdom of God is God's reign on the earth over, with, and through people. And that is a theme that began at creation and will not end because our destiny is to live forever for those who are in Christ in the kingdom of God. And another way of saying that is his reign. The idea of a kingdom is intimately tied to the idea of a king. Uh, so let me let me highlight a few places in Scripture where I mean you could we could spend this entire podcast could be called the Kingdom Podcast where we just do uh, biblical study on the kingdom. So this is going to be an embarrassingly short fly through, but hopefully it can jog your brain for your own study. Let's start with Genesis, and if you look at the first few chapters of Genesis, it, like any book, it um, if we look at the Bible as a whole, it introduces themes and right out the gate, what we see is that humanity is created and it's significant, the language that we are in the image of God. And then you get into Genesis two and we're placed in a garden. In fact, um, some scholars look at the garden, the the way the garden's set up is almost like a prototype of the temple. If you read passages when, when God is giving instructions for the tabernacle, Um, There's a lot of the images of creation in it. And and what's being said here, if you kind of tie this all together, is that humanity is God's image. We're placed in the temple, which is the place where heaven meets earth. It's the place where God's presence is fully realized. And we're given a vocation. What we're called to do is cultivate and extend the garden. So we are partnering with God and we are revealing God to creation. And we are working with him as he establishes the fullness of his presence on the earth. It's incredible opportunity that we've been given. And this idea of temple, uh, I would imagine not many of us have probably ever been into a temple where an idol of some sort or a God of some sort is worshiped. If some of you, if you traveled, maybe you've seen that, but what do temples have? Temples have inside of them the image of a God. And then that's the whole basis of a temple. That's what an idol is. Yet here we see in scripture, we see this same idea that we have a temple, which is creation. We have the image of God placed within that temple, and it's all meant to be the place where the presence of God dwells. So that's what God started with. Um, Sin is us as humanity. And if you read the account of Genesis 3, you see this so clearly. Us not being content to be God's image, but we wanted to have the power of being God ourselves. 
And right there, that one movement warped everything. And so think of how backwards we have it now, where rather than us fulfilling our vocation as God's image on the earth, instead we have created images, not of God, but of creation. And we've turned around and we worship the created thing and we call it God. Everything is backwards. We warped and marred everything by our sin at such a fundamental level that we're no longer able to reflect God to the world. We're no longer able to understand God. And we've chosen, we, we basically another way of looking at this, if we're using kingdom language, is we were not content to live under the rule of the king, and we sought to form our own kingdom. It's rebellion at its core. Hey, let me pause you real quick, Drew, and, and say back to you what I think I hear you saying, because this is huge. This frames so many of the ideas we've been talking about already in this podcast, humanism and, and individualism and so on that God's kingship is expressed in his reign on the earth, that uh, Dallas Willard calls it his, the effective range of his will is established on the earth. He creates mankind in his image to have, in, in some ways, miniature effective ranges of our will, that we are to have dominion in the sense that we're exercising stewardship over the earth and expressing God's nature that way but it's all under the umbrella of his dominion. So we are given human agency to a degree, but it was contextualized within the range of his will. And that when we exert the, 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 the effective range of our will beyond the boundaries ascribed by God, that's sin. That is where we are usurping the, the lordship, the kingship that God reserved for himself. Is that, am I hearing you? Yeah, absolutely that? right. Uh, you know, even go back to that illustration of idolatry. What we've done in humanism, it is idolatry, but we cut out the middleman. Instead of worshiping a created image that we made of something in nature, a tree or a bird or whatever it might be, we just cut that thing out and we just worship ourselves very baldly, very blatantly. Uh, I, I would say the last several hundred years, we doubled down on the sin in the Garden of Eden of saying, we want to become God, and we've built a whole system of belief around the reality, so we suppose, of humans being God. And that's our world. That's our nature. And if you go on in the Genesis account, you see the Tower of Babel, which is, is really fascinating. And it'll be interesting for us to dive into that and the contrast of Babel and Pentecost. But you see the, the Tower of Babel, which again is the same thing. It's humanity united together to try to supplant or at least put ourselves on par with God as equals rather than as creation. And so what, what does God do? Out of the scattered nations who are in rebellion seeking to supplant his rule, God calls a nation to live under his rule. And I'm going to summarize the whole Old Testament for you. Uh, you see this constant double tension on the one hand to conform to the pressure from the kingdoms surrounding Israel. Israel was always weak. I mean, there's a, a few years in her history where she had some power, but the vast majority of the time she was surrounded by much stronger empires, whether that's the Egyptian or the Assyrian. And there was this constant pressure to say the kingdoms of this world are just too powerful. We need to join them so we can survive. But then there's this other pressure you see throughout the Old Testament of people seeking to co-opt the language of the kingdom and instead make it their own. And I think that's probably at the core of the problem with religion is we take the things of God 
but we seek to make it our own and support of our own rule. And, and you see that same thing going on. And if you look at the prophetic literature and um, scripture, you're going to find that. You're going to find rebukes towards people who claim the kingdom but have no interest in the king. And you're going to find rebukes towards the people that are looking to the other kingdoms for safety and security. And consistently, God is saying, you're meant to live under my rule. Uh, let, we got to go back before sin in the garden and submit ourselves under the lordship of God for us to truly know what it means to live as humanity. So that all sets the, the, the scene for Jesus' arrival. And I think you see all of these currents collide in the life of Jesus. And there, there's so much we could say with the kingdom language that he uses. I'll hit a few highlights, but really I'd encourage anyone, if this interests you, to dive in maybe find a few good commentaries and you're going to you're going to read some of the stories of Jesus in a whole new light. Uh, I want to start though with that the recognition that Israel already had kings, not just one king, but kings. What you had is you had ultimately you had Caesar who claimed for himself to be the king of kings and even a lot of the language uh, in the New Testament is a direct affront to the language that Caesar used to describe himself. He was the king of kings, but then you had in Galilee you had Herod, who was a lesser king or a client king. You had the temple authorities, which were uh, not kings, but um, they had an, a human authority as well. So you, you had several layers of authority, and you had Jesus showing up declaring a new kingdom. That is subversive. That is treasonous. That is, uh, he wasn't just coming and saying, I have new ethics. He was declaring himself to ultimately uh, be proclaiming a new kingdom. And as we see as time goes on, he's also declaring the reality that he is the king of that kingdom. And there is no way for that to be interpreted any other way than that is a subversive message that Jesus was proclaiming. Let me pause you there too, Drew, because not only was he proclaiming a kingdom, but he was born in obscurity. The, the circumstances surrounding his birth were questionable and grew up in relative obscurity under the tutelage of his father, most likely as a carpenter and a remote town and a you know backwoods upbringing and then he comes on the scene not having been educated in the traditional way of the Jews and here's this no name backwoods country kid who is performing miracles yes but is proclaiming equality with God and is announcing a kingdom the shock that that must have induced uh, would have been profound, and so much so, of course, it got him killed. But that's it's an astonishing thing to keep in mind that the nature of this king as he's announcing his kingdom. Yeah, and even the term good news or gospel or evangelism, uh, you know, that, that Greek word is a term for a message that would be proclaimed when there's a new king or maybe a military victory. It's all political language. You know, there's a good news. We've got a new king coming and there's been a victory. You know, it's it's not just this innocuous message about an esoteric religion that's being announced here. We're talking change. And uh, to the power establishment, that would have been seen as a threat. And I would argue throughout history, it still is a threat to any source of human power. We have not yet decided that we're willing to submit to God. And I think human history is one giant example of our unwillingness to bend our knee. Um, it was certainly the case in his life. Um, one of my favorite examples of maybe something we tend to miss in Scripture is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself is the Son of Man. 
and you know, I, I grew up in church. I don't know about you, Mick, but it's like, I, I read that for so many years and I just kind of made it synonymous with Jesus and didn't really take the time to consider what it means. But if you, if you want to dig deeper, dive into Daniel chapter seven, and you've got this wild vision that Daniel had. It's like beasts with horns. And in this vision, there is this little horn who was probably the uh, Greek offshoot king from Alexander the Great, Antiochus, who ended up oppressing Israel. And you have this throne room scene. So you have all of these beasts that represent human kingdoms. You have these little horns that represent humans who are asserting power. So these are the, the powerful kingdoms of this world. And what happens is you then have this scene shift to the courtroom of heaven where God is seated on his throne. And there's this interesting little part at the end of this story where this figure who is like a son of man comes in on the clouds. The horns are cast down. So meaning the human power systems are cast down. And instead you have this son of man figure who is exalted and given authority over the earth. It's incredible. And so every time you read that phrase, the son of man, that's meant to jog our attention of this apocalyptic vision that Daniel had had, that in many ways, Jesus is saying this because it's a theme. He's telling us what he's here to do and who he is here to be. He's establishing God's kingdom on the earth. And yeah, Caesar's powerful and Herod's powerful and you know whatever other systems are out there, they have power, but God is casting them down and he's gonna establish his own kingdom through his own power. And it's going to be ultimately an assault on human agency. And instead, what we're going to see is the power of God lifted up and his reign accomplished on the earth. I mean, again, subversive language here, right? And so then if you fast forward, you get to the triumphal entry and notice the image. It's in all the gospels that the triumphal entry, the week prior to Jesus's death and crucifixion, especially you'll see this if you read the gospel of Mark, it's framed in royal imagery, but it's very, it's deeply ironic. Uh, because it's not at all what you would expect to find. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem like a king coming in. And in that, those times, you know, a king on a white horse typically meant war. A king on a donkey meant peace in the, in the ancient Near East. So he's coming in in peace. And Jesus has, he has declared himself to be the king, the rightful king of Israel. And so he's coming in to the place of his rightful rule. And you see people lining the road. They're welcoming their king. And he marches right in. And where does he go? He goes to the temple. That is his palace. The temple is, pl- is the place where God's presence is supposed to dwell. So after hundreds of years of exile, God has finally come back to the temple. The king has finally come to his throne to establish God's reign. And what happens? He gets rejected. And that scene ends with Jesus spending the night outside of the city. And that's a tragic picture that's being portrayed for us of God's purpose, God's reign. It's the sin at the Garden of Eden is happening again, where once again, we're saying we don't want God's kingship. And you see a conspiracy of all the different human power systems, whether it's the internal corruption of the temple or the external power of Caesar and his agents band together. They unite together to crucify Jesus. And I think that's symbolic of humanity as a whole. And even the crucifixion is portrayed, you know, Jesus is crowned. It's a coronation ceremony that ends with him exalted on a cross, high and lifted up to die. And then he, when he raises again, he ascends into heaven in that image. I don't know that we talk enough about the ascension, uh, but Jesus is ascending into his throne 
on the clouds of heaven, just as Daniel prophesied so many years ago. Uh, this, this theme is huge in scripture. And, you know, that, that brings us to the here and now, because this is still the story that we are living within. This is our story of the world as portrayed to the humanistic or all the other alternatives that are out there, is that Jesus is enthroned in heaven as king, and we, as his body, who are in Christ on earth, we are participating in his kingdom. And that kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. So now in the sense that we today are invited to live under the authority of Jesus and the problems with Adam, the problems, you know, we, we have a way out of that where we can go back into that place of submission and ultimately walk in the fullness of our identity and vocation, but in Christ. Um, but at the same time, it's not yet because though the, the battle has been won, Christ has not yet returned and established his kingdom in fullness on the earth. And we're living, we call it an eschatological tension is where we live today. His kingdom has come and is still to come. And those of us who are in Christ and in the church, we're the loyalists. We're the ones who are saying, even if there is a rebellion going on, we still hold to the authority of the king. And we are choosing to live under his authority, no matter what we're surrounded by, knowing that one day he's going to come and exert that authority. Yeah, this is huge. That imagery that you just shared, Drew, of Jesus coming in Jerusalem, being welcomed by the people who misinterpreted his coming. They thought he was coming to establish the Davidic kingdom then, right then, in their midst. He goes to the temple and he's rejected by the curators of the temple. And I think that's a point to really draw out for today, for our listeners, for us, is the fact that Jesus is looking, because we are the temple now, right? The body of Christ. And, and in certain ways, us even as individuals. We are a building not made with hands. We are living stones. There are so many competing affections, so many competing attentions in our culture today that are seeking that seat of authority in our heart. And Jesus is coming to see, will he be welcomed as the king in, in this temple, the church, and more specifically in us as believers? Or will he be rejected in the same way? And ultimately, this is about authority, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's a that's a buzzword in our culture. It has layers of semantic baggage to it. But ultimately, this is a question of authority. And, and that one word alongside kingdom might summarize these first few episodes. What will have authority over our hearts and minds? Will it be self-autonomy, self-authority? in the, the sense of the secular narrative that I understand the world from the inside out, uh, I'm the product of time, chance, and chemistry, or will it be an external authority, an objective authority outside of myself, in this case, Jesus and his rule and reign? I think functionally, a lot of people, again, would give lip service to the idea of Jesus as Lord. I would, I would offer that we are more comfortable with the idea of Jesus as Savior in this culture, but the idea practically of Jesus as Lord works out into all of life. And I think that's where we start to get uncomfortable and, and probably stems from a misunderstanding of his character, but also just a deep-seated sin that we want control. But the idea of Jesus as Lord, of, as King, as the authority of my life is not an appendage to my life. That's not like I have my work over here, my family over here, and then I have my Christianity over here. But that is all-encompassing, right? That's... Jesus is his Lord over my finances, over my relationships, over my decisions, my future, 
my work, my politics, my social media posts, how I buy groceries, how I pay taxes, right? Jesus has rightful claim over every domain of my life and, and by extension, my family and society. But he is a, a benevolent king and he is not exerting his authority over us, but he is, he is inviting us to open up that space and allow him to take the seat of kingship in our lives. I would suggest that a lifelong pursuit of, of submitting, of learning to submit, laying down our, that, that self-exertion of our will is it's not just the best way to live. It's the, it's the right way to live, to allow Jesus to establish his kingdom through us. We could look at all of human history, and I, I could summarize my commentary with one phrase, that human beings make bad gods. We were never created to be God, and when we make ourselves into God, we mar the goodness of God's creation, and we mar the beauty of human relationship and all that was intended um, because we're, we're exercising from a place of authority that was never given to us. We're using our power outside of where it was intended to go. And the kingship of Jesus is an invitation for right alignment. You know, and I see culturally when we hit crisis moments, what I don't see us doing, and I would even say in the church, are we doing this um, in the body of Christ around the world, is being willing to give up our authority. I, I think in a lot of ways I've been asking this question, like what's the lesson of COVID? And I think one of them is we don't have the control that we think we do. Uh, and it's very scary for us because we're so used to being the authority and we're taught this message from our earliest memories that, you know, in a way that we are God, even if it's not that explicit and we have power over creation and power over nature and power, you know, uh, it's all about the power that we have. And suddenly when that's called into question, it it's scary. It throws our whole understanding of the world for a loop. And what I find us doing is when we hit these crisis moments, our solution is always, well, we just need more power. Um, I, I need less restriction on my personal autonomy so that I can be my own God. And the reason my life is not happy is because I don't have enough power. And if I just had more power and more control, then I'd be happy or fulfilled. And I think we actually need to look at it way different and say, maybe we were never intended to wield that power. Maybe human flourishing occurs under the authority of Christ not when we follow the footsteps of Adam and try to exert it ourselves. And we see that throughout human history. And I think that that tension I talked about in Israel is still present today. Um, and I'll speak this for all of us, at least in the Western church, is on the one side, we, we face this temptation to ally ourselves or submit ourselves to the kingdoms of this world. And that could be political parties. That could be something else entirely. It could be something that feels innocuous like materialism or consumerism or the economy or greed or there's just there's a lot of kingdoms in this world that today feel a lot more powerful than we feel in the church and it's very easy to say that our survival depends on our alliance with them just like it was easy for israel to say our survival depends on allying ourselves with the assyrians or the egyptians that temptation is just as present and then there's another temptation we have and i would refer to this as cultural christianity and it's the temptation to take the language of the kingdom, but refuse to submit ourselves to the king. And this one maybe scares me even more because I can, I can say the right terminology and I can quote from scripture. But like Mick said, are we truly submitted to Jesus? Is he really Lord in all things? And I think if we're all being real, we'd recognize that we're pretty loath to give up our claim to self-sovereignty. That's the basis of original sin. And 
Um, it's not something we just deal with overnight. It's a, it's a constant temptation to put ourselves at the feet of Jesus and proclaim his, uh, him as Lord. But as we do that, that is where ultimately we walk in the fullness of what God's made us for. Thanks, Drew. Profound thoughts with massive implications. Thanks again for joining us. We are, again, a new podcast. So if you find this information helpful, feel free to share in social media. Feel free to subscribe. And we will catch you next week on Ideology.